0: Napotasa Bhakavato Arahato Sama Sambudasam Namotasa Bakavato Arahato Sama Sam Budasam Namo das Bakavato Arahato Sama Sambudasap Butantama Sankasam The next talk in this uh, book is called Being Human, and this was given uh, on the day following the previous talk, the 9th of August 2002 at the Leicester Summer School. What do we mean by this word self? In English we say myself, self selfishness, self-centeredness. Then there is the Pali word, anatta, which means no-self or non-self. In this culture, we have the ideal of not being selfish. So, when you don't want someone to do what they're doing, you say, you're being selfish, which is a way of getting at them, isn't it? It makes them feel ashamed. It makes them feel terrible to be seen as selfish. Self-sacrifice, on the other hand, is inspiring. To me at least, the idea of sacrificing oneself for the welfare of others is an inspiring concept. Now what do they mean in the Pali canon by the word atta? We interpret that word to mean self. But do the translations of words like that from the, from the religious texts, from Pali or Sanskrit, mean exactly the same as we do when we use such words? It isn't always possible to have exact equivalents in two languages. You can't necessarily have absolutely literal translations if you ta- If you translate Thai literally, for example, it doesn't make any sense at all in English. For example, uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, the old uh, Thai scholar monk who passed away some years ago once told uh, told me he helped some Christian missionaries to translate the Bible. They had tried to translate it from English to Thai but it had sounded like nonsense to the Thais. And this was partly because um, the original translation, they tried to avoid using any kind of Buddhist terminology, which is pretty difficult because about 30% of the Thai language is derived from Pali. And so so the original version of, say, the Gospel of John, which begins in the beginning was the word, Came, it was originally printed as something like, in the beginning was the noun. <laughs> which really doesn't mean anything in English. So Ajahn Buddhadasa uh, lent them a hand and said, you know, you, you're really going to have to use some Buddhist terminology and just put it to your own purposes. So then uh, I believe the Gospel of John then became uh, uh, rendered as, uh, in the beginning was the Dhamma.
1: <laughs> so...
0: Compromise solution. They had tried to translate it from English to Thai, but it had sounded like nonsense to the Thais. In the beginning was the word, translated literally, just didn't make sense. Even in English, of course, that's a difficult one, isn't it? But Adasa, however, translated it as, in the beginning was the Dhamma. When we reflect on self, then, what is it really? It isn't a matter of getting definitions from other people or trying to align ourselves with some Pali text definition of self, but of contemplating the moments when we actually become a person, a self, somebody. And also those moments when we don't. Those moments when there is no self. This is a reflective practice. It's intuitive and not logical. Most of us assume that we are a kind of permanent person, permanent self, and we give a lot of importance to our past, to our attainments, our achievements, our failures and mistakes. So, self, quote-unquote, is conditioned. When I use the word self, I'm talking about my thoughts and memories, and how I align myself with them. Our personality obviously changes according to the situation we're in. It adapts to whatever conditions are in the present. We don't really notice that, though, and assume that there is a permanent self, a permanent personality. When we do not reflect and observe the way it is, we just operate from this assumption. That is why, on a personal level, I am vulnerable. When I abide in my personality, in the sense of myself as a person, people can hurt my feelings, abuse me, make me feel suicidal, make me very happy, make me jump for joy, or bore me as a person. Knowing this, then, we can begin to examine the personality. What is it? In the ten fetters, the ten obstructions to enlightenment, the fetters that need to be relinquished for arahantship, the first three are personality belief, attachment to conventions, and skeptical doubt. The point is to really know your personality. So I encourage this inner listening, just allowing your personality to manifest in consciousness, without reacting or attaching to it, simply accepting it. Whatever conditions arise, pleasant, unpleasant or whatever, just listen to yourself. Listen to the way you grumble and complain, to your discontentments, inspirations, depressions, doubts and attachments. So this is a a very central theme of the teaching. And um, when Lung says, uh, and notice what it's like when we when we are a person when we become somebody when we actually are a, a self a person and there's moments when we don't and so that we might think as he says and actually i think one of the talks later on in the book is um you're not a permanent person uh, and so that we assume well, we've got a body we have a, a name we have a personality and we we have this continuing ongoing self but uh, it's uh in terms of direct experience, these are particular structures or aspects of of talking about particular patterns of experience, patterns of nature, um, and it's a like a, a thumbnail sketch of one particular area of experience. So I remember uh, when Lompo was giving a Sunday afternoon talk about this um, many many years ago uh, here in this the sala, and he uh, he was um, uh, sitting up on the on the dhamma seat. And then he said, uh, as, as a way of illustrating this point, he said, okay, now I'm going to stop existing. Watch carefully. And he sat there. Okay, I'm back. <laughs> and people say, what? Did, did, I, did I blink? Did I miss it? But he was talking about his internal attitude. The, the sense of, at the moment, I'm Ajahn Sumedha giving a Sunday afternoon talk. Then. So okay, I'm going to stop existing. I'm going to stop being somebody. Then in those moments, the mind let go, stopped investing the body or the personal stories or the thoughts and emotions with any kind of solidity. So he literally stopped existing. The body didn't evaporate. He didn't fly up into the air or just turn into a rainbow or something. But from the outside, it looked like he was still there. But on the inside, there was uh, there was nobody there in those moments. Does that make sense? I'm not sure that everybody who has gathered that day quite understood. <laughs> but uh, it's it's an important thing. Uh, and so that, uh, it's, it's also interesting, in, in terms of words, it's very interesting that the English word person comes from the Latin word persona, which means a mask. It's the, the thing you put over your face to hide behind. So per means through, sona is the sound. So an, an actor on the, the stage in Rome or Greece they would wear a mask. So the the mask is what the sound goes through It's the persona. So the clue is right there in the English word, the person is a mask. It's a performance. So uh, um, one of the the ways that um, it's helpful to reflect on this, and also, if you look in in uh, uh, in Western psychology, they've done quite a lot of, um, of studies of hundreds and hundreds of studies over the years, different ways of talking about the structures of self and, and how those uh, how those form. And some of them are quite complicated, and some of them are, are a bit simpler. Um, and so that uh, the the Buddha in a, uh, talked about the, um, uh, the different kinds of self or different attributes of that self feeling uh, in his teaching on the Anattalaksa Sutta, the uh, the discourse on not self, the second of his Dhamma talks. So in that uh, in that talk uh, and we recited it yesterday morning i believe is so, that right yes we did chanted the Anathalakana sutta so uh, in the sutta if you look at the translation on the opposite page um, you'll see when the buddha is talking about the uh, the analysis of that self feeling then it says mama this is not mine Ne so hamasmi this is not what i am me so me atah, this is not a self this is not a uh, uh this is not an identity. So those three, uh, uh etang mama, mama is the feeling of ownership, like uh the, the feeling of a child owning the mother is like mama, mama, mama. So like the uh <coughs> that's the 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 word Pali word mama literally means mine. So uh that first uh, of those three qualities these are called the, the gaha uh or the obsessions uh, and they are uh, or the, also called the papancha dhammas, the causes for proliferation. So that feeling of uh, mama, of owning, is one aspect of self, me the owner. This is mine, this is my body, my life, my thoughts. So the I feeling that is the owner. And then the, um, uh, the, the second one, uh, this is what I am, that's the I, which is the sense of being. The sense of, of I exist. I am. I am this thing. I am a person. I am a, a, a male. I'm a female. I'm a monastic. I'm a taravag, that, that sense of amness, or that what 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 we are um, as an uh, as a as a person, as characteristics. So that's the the second of the gaha is the um, uh, uh, is the uh, the uh, the uh, the conceit of identity, the, the feeling of I-ness being solid. So the first one is related to, to owning, to greed, to, to desire. So the first of the gaha is tanha, craving, owning. The second one is asmi, is the I am feeling, uh, which is related to conceit, uh, that sense of uh, solid I-ness. And then the third one, esome atta uh this is uh, uh i am not, this is not my identity uh this is not what i am so that's um that's related to views and opinions so there's different ways you can read it um but the way it uh, it seems to to me to be a a, a a correct fit is that the the third one um the This is my story. So this is my name. I'm a Buddhist monk. I am an I live in this place. Uh, so it's the kind of narrative about uh, about your life, your uh, your kind of curriculum vitae, your your life story, your your saga. So that then those uh, <coughs> those three: the feeling of owning, the feeling of being, and the feeling of uh, the, the kind of your story. You can call those the, the owning self, the being self and uh, the narrative self, that the Buddha highlights those. These are different ways of that, that self-feeling forms um, within our perceptions. And as I said, if you look it up on Wikipedia, so self-theories in Western psychology, they have all sorts of different entries. But I feel that the Buddha uh, uh, covers uh, the the uh, the whole area very neatly and, and succinctly in that way. But the point that Lumpur Sumedho is making here is how um, all of those uh, the, you know, as, and as the Buddha says in uh, in the Anatalakana nee tang mama, this is not mine, ne so this is not what I am, nameso me this is not this is not uh, me, and uh, this is not my story, this is not uh, a true identity. The Western world is idealistic, so we have these standards about how things should be, and then compare ourselves personally. With the ideals of what a perfect buddhist monk should be for example we let our personalities work with these things and can inspire ourselves we want to be the best we really want to be like the buddha we want to be calm and serene wise compassionate and unselfish and even sacrifice nibbana for the welfare of all sentient beings these are ideals that might inspire our minds on a personal level but we can't sustain it because and we act in a lesser way. We can't live up to the ideals. What happens? We become self-critical. I'm not good enough. I'm not a very good monk. I'm letting people down. I'm weak and unworthy of the robe. The gap between our human personalities and our, our ideals, is vast, and they can never meet. Can I make my personality into a Bodhisattva or a Buddha? I think Buddha's personality. But I've got to let go of personality so that I have no personality. And then I'm just... But how am I supposed to relate to anybody in that state? I come to the Leicester summer school and just sit here? I've noticed after teaching in the West for so long, there is this common pattern of self-disparagement here. Self-criticism, self-blaming, self-dislike. We generally have low self-esteem and see ourselves in negative terms, even though we might be very good people in every way. Our tendency is to make a big deal out of the things that are not so good. I'm quite capable of doing this myself. I can take the floor, make it an obs- a flaw f l a w not the the thing under the carpet, the mistake or the thing that's wrong, the flaw, and make it an obsession of my mind. In monastic communities, it's easy to put up a good front. You put on the robe, sit like a Buddha rupa, and give the appearance of this ideal that we all long for. Well, some can put on a good show anyway. Others can't even do that. The Zen tradition, I think, they can do it better. So there's a lot of Zen people uh, there as well. So very uh, <clears throat> notable for sitting extremely straight and still in their meditations. So, uh, any any particular questions on that so far before we carry on? Anything that I said? Anything that's unclear? Okay. I was an 8 vasa monk when I was made abbot of Wat in Thailand. Only eight years as a monk, and suddenly I found myself as the head monk and teacher, and also that was he was the founding abbot, so the place was brought into existence and Ajahn Chah said, okay, we're going to have this branch monastery for Westerners and you're going to be in charge. Okay, off you go, Sumedho. It wasn't really a plan. It was just they they were on their way. Uh, a few Western monks were traveling through this nearby village of Bungwai and they they put up their, their mosquito nets to, to camp for the night in the forest there. And the lay people said, oh, can you stop and start a monastery here? Please, 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 please. So they... Um, So, uh, uh, Lumpur Samedha went back to speak to Lumpur Cha and and he gave permission for it to begin. So, that's how Pananacha began in 1975. Only eight years as a monk, and suddenly I found myself as the head monk and teacher. I immediately tried to withdraw into this role of my ideal of what a good abbot should be. So, I suppressed everything and more or less hid behind the role I'd been given. And that, of course, led to a sense of frustration and loneliness, because the role is appropriate to time and place, isn't it? Being a teacher is fair enough. It's appropriate for situations like this relationship here, right now, for example. The problem arises when you try to hold to, to a particular role with close friends, say, or even when you're alone. If there is a tendency to perform like that, the sense of loneliness and isolation on a personal level increases. You can be in the midst of a large community Still feel totally alone, totally isolated. Uh, it's it's also um, uh, going back to one of the, the comments that he made earlier that um, the the uh, the gap between the the ideal and the the reality. Uh, so how your personality is, or how you your your mind operates, and how you think you should be, um, and the uh, uh, the a poet t. s Eliot put it very very neatly speaking about the same kind of principle he said, between the idea and the fact, there falls the shadow. There's this kind of big gap, this big gulf, this sort of you the idea of how things should be or what's perfect, and then the actual it's this way in a state of flux and unclarity and uh, uncertainty and, and and imperfection or lack of uh, of of idealness um and so in that poem, he calls it uh, the, the shadow. But um, it's, uh, <clears throat> it, and what we do in the West is often we put the ideal first, then have the actual sort of trying to match up with, with the ideal. And so that uh, we put the ideal at the center and give that all the power and attention. So this is the way things should be. And living in, in the United States for, for 15 years or so, it's a, a very idealistic country. and. Um, they they have a you know constitution uh, and these the, so the uh, making statements in their like the declaration of of independence of life you have the the right for life liberty and the pursuit of happiness you know? all men are created equal uh, and the uh, these kind of statements that every american schoolchild uh learns you know? and that um, they, so the ideal is very strong, a very front-center, so of course nobody can really match the ideal. So the way that it works in, in Buddhist practice, and particularly within the, uh, the meditation tradition, is that you have the ideals, you use them like a Buddha image, you know, it's there, we, we have that as an ideal, but the, the ideals are off at the edges, and you start from where you are. You don't start with how you should be, or how you want to be, but you start from, from uh from where you are, you you work with the material that you've got, and so that it's a um, it's like if you're on on the uh, the, the cooking team, and uh, you uh, you you've decided oh today you know, I'd like to to cook such and such a dish, and then you go to the larder and the pantry and go oh half the ingredients aren't here, but but I want to cook it. That's what I want to cook. I'm determined. Like we've got to cook that today. It's like, well, if half the ingredients don't exist, then you're going to create suffering right there. So instead, you go. Uh, you have an idea of what you like to do. You go to the larder, to the, the food store, the pantry, and have a look, and go, "Aha! Well, I did want to do that, but uh, half the thing, half the ingredients are not here. So, what can I make with what's here? What can, what can we do with the materials that we have available? So you you start with with what you've got, where you're at, rather than some um, mental projection about how you should be. The, um, uh, I think a, a few weeks ago, I was telling the story of how when Lumpur Sumato started up as the, as the, uh, the abbot of Wapananachat, uh, he was getting very frustrated and and, uh, and upset with how um, the, uh, uh, say, um, uncompliant and unhelpful the, the Sangha were, the, the monks were not doing what he told them. And his model for leadership. Was heavily influenced by being in the American Navy for four years. So, you know, you give an order and then the, the, <laughs> you know, the, troops, uh, the troops obey. And the, the, the officer gives an order and, and the, the, uh, the team jumps to it. And in the monastery, it was not working like that. And so uh, uh, he went to, to Wapapong and was very you know, sorrowful and, and kind of upset. Oh, boy, it's not working. This is terrible. I can't do it and uh and, you know the monks are kind of disruptive and difficult, they won't obey me and then uh Cha said it well, it's it's like you're trying to get them all to line up and be the same and to be just like you, but it's like if you if you had them all lie down on the ground and you lined up their heads, then their feet are all wobbly they're kind of they're all at a uh, out of alignment and then you you line up the feet and the feet are all straight, and then the heads are out of alignment, so that yeah you know, no matter how many times you adjust it, they're never going to all be straight lines at both ends, because people are different. I've noticed the king's daughter, as the king of Thailand's daughter, I've noticed the king's daughter, Princess Sirintorn in Thailand, is always being put on a pedestal, sometimes literally up on a platform, sitting separately, with everybody around her. But I feel that to live a life where you are always put into that position must be very unpleasant. The human side needs to be respected also. The human being is not just an image, a role model, an archetype. In formal meditation, we often go into another kind of role. The sitting posture, being the meditator, being in silence, and allowing a lot of emotion to surface into consciousness. And it's appropriate in that situation. But what happens in daily life when when there are relationships and interchanges? Some people you find are very good as teachers. They can give very good retreats. Yet on a personal level, they really can't cope. So it's a question of recognizing that this is how things work. I mean, if we're coming from awareness, the transcendent, to the archetype of the monk, or the archetype of the meditator, the archetype of the bodhisattva or whatever, it is a question of trying to align the awareness with the archetype so that there isn't a gap between the personality, the human needs, and the rest. So they're working together, supporting each other, rather than identifying with one and seeking the highest or ignoring the lower aspects, the seemingly less interesting, more embarrassing conditions of being human. This happens a lot, I think, especially with Westerners. But in Thailand, you find teachers that are very human. They're an earthy kind of people, like Ajahn Chah and he was not at all idealistic. Yet when you read books about him, he sounds like Superman, like a kind of perfect Buddhist monk. In Theravada Buddhism, the tendency is to see the self, quote-unquote, as something that we have to get rid of. We talk about the defilements, the kilesas, and the fetters, sangyojana. And there are all these lists of taints, the asava, and ways of talking about greed, hatred, delusion. All these things are interpreted in terms of what we have to get rid of. We have to conquer desire, ignorance, greed, hatred and delusion. We have to get rid of the things that are involved the personality of being human. This humanity thing is embarrassing. If you're idealistic, you want to be this wonderful monk. and Then you have to go to the toilet. It is embarrassing, isn't it? One suddenly has to get up and leave the room. Going to the toilet is not a perception we generate from the role model, from the archetype. Ajahn Chah was very ill during the latter part of his life, and it was interesting to see people's reactions to that. The frailty of his body, his humanity, was very obvious, and since he couldn't take care of his own needs, we had to do it all for him. Most monks and laypeople adapted to that, but some just couldn't bear it. They wanted the model Ajahn Chah, not the reality not the human one. In Thailand, they love to make these kind of Madame Tussaud uh, models of monks, kind of waxwork, uh, sort of lifelike images. They have a museum in the west of Bangkok with all the great teachers in fiberglass. You can see Ajahn Mun sitting there and Lung Por Chah over there. Lung Por Chah looks really good in the museum. They gave one of these fiberglass models to Wapapong, Lung Por Chah's monastery. And this model of Lung Po was put underneath his kuti, where he used to sit on a bamboo chair and receive people. The kutis are on pillars. So they put the model in this chair, and it looked quite realistic. It looked, in fact, just like Lung Po I remember on one occasion when I was helping to nurse him, dealing with the, uh, the facts of life, the human needs, I was getting a bit weary, and went over to sit by this model. And then, just for a moment, I thought, I wish Lumpur were like this model all the time. Recognize that as soon as you are born into the world, you are conditioned by the things that happen to you. So you develop a sense of yourself, a sense of I'm a boy or I'm a girl, I'm an American, I'm a good boy, I'm not such a good boy. You get the messages from your parents, your peers, society, and the ethnic group that you're brought up in. So you acquire a sense of yourself as a separate person. Remember, this comes after you are born. You're not born as a personality. You don't see yourself as a boy or a girl when uh, when you're born, or anything at all. You're a baby, but you don't see yourself as a baby. As I remember, I can't remember thinking, I'm a baby. The sense of your self-worth then develops in childhood and often gets fixed in adolescence. So uh, one of the um, uh, the, uh, the stories that uh, uh, this brings to mind is um, a sense of, of uh, our humanity and uh, we want to be this sort of lofty, wise, totally sort of serene, perfect um, uh, Buddhist monk or meditator, uh, a uh, spiritual being. And uh, <clears throat> many years ago... Um, when I was living in California, there was a, 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 a teaching program that was organized through Spirit Rock uh, Buddhist Center, and it was uh, what they called a community Dharma leader. So it was lay people who ran different Buddhist groups and had centers all over the U.S. and Canada, and about 90 people in this group, and they were developing this this uh, two-and-a-half-year-long teaching program for them uh, to help train them to run their centers and to uh, say increase their capacity and their knowledge in terms of of uh, leading Buddhist groups and, and functioning as part of a, of a larger national community. So anyway, a man called James Barras was was organizing this, and um, so he asked me. He said, uh, "You know, many of us are involved in Vipassana and uh, this Buddhist practice, we uh, th- we are very dedicated to to the retreat practice and Buddhist teachings, but we tend to go and sit with these Advaita Vedanta teachers like uh, Punjaji or or." Uh, uh, with um, Nisargadatta Maharaj, or we go to uh, Tibetan retreats with Dzogchen teachers or uh, study Mahamudra and such like for these sort of ultimate reality teachings. But I know that those teachings exist in the Theravada, but uh, I don't know where to find them. I don't know how to to um, seek them out. Or could you come along and do a session at the community Dharma leaders on these ultimate reality teachings and on the nature of Nibbāna for, for the group? So I said, okay. And... Uh, so I uh, sat down with uh, Ajahn pasno and uh, sort of, uh, went through a few suttas and collected some notes. And, and so this was to, to, to like a, a two-hour long presentation on ultimate reality. And so with all these um, uh, uh, experienced Buddhist meditators, teachers, and people who have been practicing, many of them practicing many more years than I had. So anyway so you 're going along you 've been invited to give these sort of super duper super high lofty uh, transcendent teachings and uh, i 'm generally quite healthy and I have a very strong constitution so i 'm very very rare for me to be ill. Uh, I sometimes get a cold you know have a runny nose, but to actually feel to be to be nauseous or to have an upset stomach is extremely rare for me anyhow so uh as I went along, uh, was, the session was beginning at about nine o'clock, and I I'd, uh, got there at about uh, eight fifteen, eight thirty. And as we were pulling up to the to the centre where the session was was being held, I started to feel really unwell. I was kind of getting hot and sweaty, and and feeling really quite kind of groggy. And um, and, <clears throat> and so I. Um, And by the time, so I thought, this is kind of strange. What's going on? So then I I I found that I got sicker and sicker and sicker. And so when the um, uh, when the car pulled up to the uh, to the in the car park outside the centre, I just kind of (laughs) ran in through the door and kind of by uh, intuitively hurtled to the nearest bathroom, threw my guts up into the into the toilet, and I was violently ill, like this massive kind of projectile vomiting. It's really, and I was just really kind of hot and sweaty and kind of leaning against the wall. Whoa. So I'm supposed to be teaching about ultimate reality. And so there was this kind of little voice in the back of my mind saying, I think this is a kind of a teaching. <laughs> so here you are being ready to discourse about these sort of lofty transcendence principles uh, in the Buddha Dhamma. And uh, so <clears throat> let's let's keep this real, shall we? <laughs> so um, uh I, I didn't know what was going to happen because I was I couldn't even really stand up at that time. So I just sort of leant against the wall and threw up a few more times. And then as the the clock went round to about like, know, ten to nine, five to nine, then it just sort of my system leveled off a bit. And then sort of two minutes to nine, you know, I walked into the dhamma hall and kind of sat myself down. I said, oh, hello, Arjun Amaro. <laughs> so hello, Ajanamaro. So I sat down and, and I gave this um presentation and had uh, this, uh, talk and then uh, read some suttas and gave a, a commentary and then had questions and discussion. And so it was, it was finishing at 11 o'clock. And so then I said, Okay, well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll take my leave. And then kind of tried to, kind of, I could feel my guts churning all over again. And so I tried to walk in a composed way towards the door. <laughs> as soon as I got the door open, whoosh, you know, <laughs> hurtled at high speed towards the, the bathroom. <laughs> you know, puked my guts up again, and uh, so that was a very vivid memory uh, and kind of amazing um, yeah i 'm not a superstitious person, uh, but sometimes the karmic effects of the the, the kind of uh, of one 's life and what you 're doing what 's happening uh, have a a very almost sort of eerie kind of um, appropriateness <laughs> so there was this extremely human and uh, um, Uh, say, natural condition that was not under personal control. Uh, On one, on the one side, it's very, 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 very human, (laughs) and on the other side, there were these sort of lofty, transcendent teachings on ultimate reality, the unconditioned, the unborn, the selflessness and emptiness, and so on. And uh, that, that, the notes that that got put together for that um, that little workshop then eventually took shape as the the book, The Island. So that's where that. The, uh, that kind of got uh, got launched. I was uh, part of a part of it was because of that that request. So that, uh, uh, I'm grateful that James Barra made that invitation. And, but also, it's uh, it's kind of the memory of that. Whenever I start to be sort of discoursing about the uh, nature of ultimate reality, and the unborn, the unconditioned, the uncreated, then there's uh, this. Um, this uh, uh, other voice in, in, that's there in the mind saying, "Well, yeah, let's keep this down to earth and keep it, uh, keep it tangible and human, because these these things belong together." Does that make sense? Any questions, thoughts? Okay. Much to my sometimes disgust and shock, I can see that my personality and some of the emotional habits that arise into my consciousness are quite immature. Some in fact are adolescent and even childish. The point is, the conditioning process often doesn't get resolved in any skillful way while we are growing up, and therefore tends to perpetuate itself through a lifetime. When my father was ninety-one, he sometimes acted like a little child. He'd been a man of great authority and presence, a man who had the world under control. Then suddenly, as he lost his ability to control things, as he let go of the illusion of, I am an adult man in control of the world, those unresolved conditions of his lifetime started coming into consciousness. And he had tantrums and sulked like a little child. I have seen these tendencies also in myself. As one listens inwardly, one might become aware of quite childish emotional reactions to situations. Uh, Going back to a Bayagiri monastery in California, um, back in the days when we had a tape library, remember cassette tapes? Some some of you are probably born after cassette tapes ceased to exist. So we had a tape library, and... uh, The most popular tape, uh, the most popular Dhamma talk in the the tape library was one that uh, Lumpur Semedo had given in 1995. He led a 10-day retreat in in, um, uh, Washington State that year. And it was called Emotionally Stuck at the Age 15. That was a very, very popular... (laughs) That was signed out far more than than, uh, pretty much every other tape. The challenge, then, is not to wait until you're 90 before understanding such things, but to realize now that meditation includes all the conditions we're experiencing, whatever they might be. It's not a matter of trying to calm down the emotions and dismiss the defilements in order to get some tranquil state out of meditation. For men, I think, emotions are very frightening. Most monks feel ill at ease around emotions. So, when anyone talks about them, it makes them uncomfortable. They would sooner brush them aside. Don't attach to emotions, but that quite often means suppress them. If you just push away emotional feeling as soon as it comes up. however, that leads to a rather sterile result in monastic life. You become a kind of you become kind of dried up if you can't be at ease with emotions, your own and other people's, you tend to petrify yourself, you become fixed and often very opinionated about things. Women are more aware of their emotions. They're not so frightened of them, and seem quite willing to be emotional. But that can be distressing if you don't like it. It can be a threat. So uh, going back to the um, uh, the earlier comments about um, childhood and how our sense of self gets uh, very easily conditioned um, uh, into into the mind and. Um, and so that our, f- our sense of uh, you know I'm a good person, I'm a bad person, I'm a success, I'm a failure, uh, I'm I'm loved, I'm not loved, I'm wanted, I'm not wanted, and so forth. Um, that uh, it, it's yeah, within within the Buddha's teaching, yeah, you know, he will occasionally talk about if you know, someone who's had a fortunate birth or they're born into a good family, and sometimes make reference to to a difficult situation someone who's been born with uh with a disability or, or with a, a terrible disease but uh, that's not made a huge amount of the I mean, uh, those particular th- things that are kind of the, the cards you're dealt with at, at birth but the focus of the teaching is upon uh working with what you've got and and uh, the um, uh not dwelling upon the the kind of uh, uh, having a a, a an unfortunate childhood, or having a a terrible disease, or or having a lot of blessings and being a special person. Uh, It's always about how to use those situations, how to, to, uh, say, make the best out of what you've got, because you can have a really good hand, you can be, uh, uh, say, blessed with a lot of good fortune, good health, and a a, a good mind and a a good family, but you can really make a, a, a lot of problems out of it. Similarly, you can have a very a very difficult situation, or something very, very painful, and um, and yet that doesn't have to be an obstruction to to enlightenment. So for myself, I feel very fortunate in terms of fortunate birth. That uh, growing up, my parents were uh, were absolutely rigorous in fair shares for each of the children. So they never ever let on if they if they had a favorite child who that favorite child was. There's three three siblings. two elder sisters and myself. So everyone it was always fair shares for everyone, and we had different uh, interests, different activities, and so it was kind of sometimes hard to to balance things out. So my elder sister was into ballet dancing, and my younger sister and I were into horse riding. And, but uh, and I didn't realize until I was pretty much a, a uh, like a college student and into a, a adult life, how uh, that isn't the case in many families. <laughs> but for quite a lot of people, it's like, they will have grown up with like, always being told that they're, they're the special one. They're, 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 they We're going to pay for you to go to a good school. We're not going to waste money on her. You know, and they'll tell the children that. That's that you know, People will say, that, well, my parents told me they weren't going to waste money on sending me to a good school because I'd only waste it. I'd only, I'd only make a mess of it. And I'd hear people make those kind of comments, and just be gobsmacked, amazed. What, really? Your parents said that in front of you? Yes, many times. And so um, that uh, it was quite, um, uh, say, uh, uh, an eye opener. Also, living in community, Uh, I lived uh, since 1978. I've lived in community, so uh, large numbers of people. in uh, in and around me all the time and so that uh, it's uh, over the years I've got a sense of the the different dynamics that that are there in people's families. Some people who uh, say um, families were broken, their parents split up when they were young or that um, they were very favored and uh, always told they're wonderful. Sometimes the parents are kind of incompetent. There's some friends of ours uh, of the monastery in California the the mother was the word overwhelmed was not in every sentence, but uh, it was very very frequently she'd she'd say how she felt overwhelmed and that life was so difficult and kind of demanding she couldn't cope and and uh, basically her eight year old daughter became the head of the family because mom is always overwhelmed so okay we need an, we need an adult here <laughs> so little sophie kind of stepped up and I mean in appropriate ways. But uh, and she she realised you know mum's not strong enough or she's always overwhelmed okay, so then she had to take on that kind of being the stable, reliable uh, linchpin for the for the for the family at the age of eight, and so the different conditioning that we have as Longpo is talking about getting to know your personality. What were the dynamics in your family? You know, did you ever come from a broken home? Or did you have a very stable family? Um, were you adopted? Do you even know who your parents are? Um, yeah. So uh, again, not to make a, a, a kind of an ego trip out of it, but getting to know it so that you can see through it. So you, okay, well, yeah, I always feel unworthy, particularly because my parents always told me, you're worthless. <laughs> so so um, or, you're, or yes, I, I always feel entitled, I, I deserve the best because my parents always told me you're the best, you know, so that, aha that's uh, this is this way because of you know that cause. that's the cause this is the effect aha and so when their mind is able to recognize cause and effect okay this is the cause this is the effect it started out there it ended up there aha so you're seeing a pattern of nature rather than me and my life and what was really good and what i should keep and what's really bad and terrible and i can't forgive Uh, but rather by Changing the view and letting go of self is not sort of destroying the self or wiping it out, but seeing that all those self structures are patterns of nature, and like the very title of the book, don't take your life personally. <laughs> so that um, capacity to see, oh, because i have always being loved and approved, I feel very confident and at ease with people. Or oh, because I'm always being criticised and blamed and rejected. I feel insecure, and I assume everyone rejects me. Aha! There's no thing really there. It's just a pattern that's, that's taken shape. It doesn't have to be believed in. It doesn't have to, to, to dominate the mind. So uh, that uh, so in the terms of the meditation, as Lumpur says, um, to dismiss the defilements in order to get to some tranquil state out of meditation. It's like to get to know the emotions, to get to know that feeling of, I don't belong, I'm not really good enough, they're going to throw me out. Uh, I shouldn't be here. Um, that oh, look at that! Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Why do I feel that my mind is polluting the retreat, and the other fifty-five retreatants are all radiating kindness over the entire world? Yeah. Why am I the one that doesn't really belong? Who's got the 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 you know, the, 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 uh, the say uh, the habits of creating disharmony and confusion? kind of polluting the atmosphere with my vibes. So that uh, that familiarity getting to know and then it makes it possible to shift the view from a self-centered perspective to a dhamma or nature centered perspective. And that's really when we talk about letting go of self, it's it's changing the view from self-centered to to nature centered in perceptions. Any questions, thoughts, reflections? Forgiveness, Forgiveness. absolutely. Absolutely. Essentially, forgiveness is making space for the way things are. And that uh, the um, forgiving doesn't necessarily mean that you condone. But you can see that, like I, when I was growing up, uh, uh, he and I argued a lot and uh, had numerous uh, of clashes head to head, uh, clashes and um, and so uh, it was. I was well into adult life. I was been a monk for quite a long time, uh, about fifteen years or so, when. and it was the, when I got to the kind of age that my father was when I was born, so uh, in my late thirties, early forties, and uh, so I was sort of I look in the mirror and I see oh that's what Dad looked like when, when when he got married when when I was born. So. That's the sort of the, the face that looks out of the mirror. So I could kind of put myself in his shoes, if you like, and uh, and so I began to to uh, sort of. It wasn't deliberate, but I was living here at Amravati at that time. But I, I found myself contemplating that, and also, uh, you know, the flow of his life. And so I, I would remember the kind of the, the raging arguments we had, and me sort of criticizing him for being, you know, so kind of old-fashioned and conservative and narrow-minded and a bigot and so on and so forth. Well, I was this kind of wise, noble. Liberal, good person, yeah. and uh, so then I, I found myself uh, looking at his life and realizing, you know, he was the youngest child of Edwardian parents. His father was nearly forty when Queen Victoria died. My grandfather was born in eighteen sixty-three. My grandmother was born in eighteen seventy-five. My dad was the youngest child of uh, of um, of five children, born in nineteen thirteen, and so he grew up in a house that, I mean, like literally, uh, you know, my my grandfather was was uh, they lived in Walthamstow in London, and uh, so he was nearly forty when Queen Victoria died, beginning of the twentieth century. So, I think, well, so what was my dad's world like when he was a little child? Well, of course, he was like a, it was a it was a totally different world. When my grandfather was born, there was no electricity in London. There were gas lights. There were no cars. You know, people went around by, on foot or with horses and carts. You know. It's a whole different universe. So I kind of put myself into my dad's shoes growing up. So he's the, the youngest child of these Victorian parents growing up in a, in a crowded house in, in London. And he's the, you know, the youngest child, a lot younger than the rest of his siblings. And so what was the world that he grew up in? And I sort of putting myself in his shoes like that. And so I was born in 1956, so I'm growing up in the 1960s. So, me being a teenager in the 60s, he was a teenager in the 20s. Ah, so, so no wonder we don't quite meet because his world is completely different. What he grew up with came into his teens in the 1920s with parents who were Victorians, a whole different universe. So then. And I began to feel quite embarrassed. Like, you know, it's, how could I have been so hard on him? He, he was—he did as, as good a job as he could, given the, the background he had and the kind of social conditioning he had. You know, the world he grew up in—it was the world of empire. You know, the British Empire covered the world with red. <laughs> well, the map was covered with red with the British you rule you know, all over—you know—Canada, Australia, and India, and, uh, large, large slices of Africa. And, Asia and Singapore. Yeah, you know, that that uh that kind of universe was so different from the liberal sixties and the sort freewheeling life of of, a, of someone in the in the late twentieth century. So I, I felt that it wasn't again it wasn't really deliberate, but it wasn't just forgiveness. I felt kind of embarrassed at how conceited and idiotic I'd been. <laughs> and and also even though he had many failings and, uh, and such that uh, I really found this there was a natural compassion, a kind of making space for him, rather than how can you not be how I think you should be. <laughs> so the forgiveness was was uh, not like even a deliberate practice or a thing that, that was there, but rather it arose out of that quality of reflection, putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, why they made the decisions that they did. What's uh, important to them? What's meaningful to them? And so that, uh, I mean, like when I was leaving university, and I said I was going to go and travel, in, uh, travel around the world, and and uh, go to India and Southeast Asia, and he said, "India." I mean, I won't repeat his exact words because it's not, it's not uh, repeatable in polite company. But he said, "India. Why would you want to go to India?" He'd been there as part of the British Army in the, in the Second World War, so his his experience of India was as a British soldier, and um, and so India as a sort of spiritual homeland of of Asia, you know, kind of a, this sort of pa- this sort of power spot for spiritual development it was like had absolutely there's it just wasn't there in his perceptions. It was this kind of dusty. Uh, uncomfortable, hot a place filled with people you couldn't understand and food you couldn't eat. You that was it was a and why would you want to go to India? we kinda of looked at each other. <laughs> well <laughs> so it was kinda of, it was quite beautiful really and during those years and I found that um that uh, the that quality of of uh, forgiveness it's is, again, when you stop taking things personally, and you look at not just your life not in a personal way, but you look at other people's lives in a, in a, a non-personal way, and you find that uh, you can get bigger. You, you can make space. And again, not that you agree or you condone some of the opinions that people have or the actions that they have, but you can say, yeah, I can see why that person Feels that way. Yeah, they had that kind of a background or they had that experience. And so, yeah, I don't agree with them, but uh, yeah, I can see where that comes from. So, you, you find that in a way uh, your common humanity, your, your common um, life is a, uh, a place where you, where you meet, even though your opinions might be very different. Does that make sense? Okay, last paragraph here. Yeah. I've dealt with this by listening inwardly to the resistance to the fear I have around the emotional world and my own emotional habits. It's like inviting them in, welcoming even a situation where I'm put under emotional stress and to be willing to experience anger say or fear, jealousy, or resentment. Just listen to those things without judgment now it's very difficult for me to listen to my emotional world because a lot of it I would judge as immature. But that's a put-down, isn't it? If I say, oh, immature emotions, that is a way of saying that as a mature man, I should not have them. So this is another judgment I'm putting onto the situation rather than listening to it. Feeling it and allowing it to be fully accepted into consciousness. The acceptance of emotion is actually the letting go of it. That letting go isn't pushing it away. I found this works well for me. It allows the sense of humanity to be appreciated and respected. It's a way of recognizing this human realm is not to be despised, not to be put down as a lesser experience that needs to be got rid of. So the uh, this uh, uh, theme here that Lumpo's is talking about, welcoming emotions, um, so that... Uh, he often would teach about uh, this in using a phrase to think the unthinkable, so that if you have a petty thought like, "Yeah, yeah I uh, I hate uh, this person. I I hate Tan Tana, He's a horrible monk. He's really awful and really irritating, depressing," and say, so "Oh, yeah, I shouldn't. That's a horrible thought. That's terrible. I shouldn't think that." <coughs> way. Um, what Lumpur would do, and he would encourage, is to think the unthinkable. So that if you have like a, an impulse of aversion, jealousy, or desire, then you, you rather than think, oh, I shouldn't think that, that. You know, good monks shouldn't think that. Or, you know, a noble practitioner would never have that kind of thought. You, you know, in a sense, you catch it and replay it. Like he's a bad monk. If he didn't exist, I would be happy. If only he was different, that would be great. If he was just like the way I think he should be, life would be fine. And so it's kind of a, it's a, it's thinking the unthinkable. It's completely kind of non-Buddhist, as it were. Um, but what happens is, if you do that, is that you start laughing. I mean, like some of you are going to start to giggle, you know, as they say it. Because what happens if you do that is you can't get to the end of the sentence without it falling apart. It's like, uh, if you were different, I'd be happy. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> No, you wouldn't you'd find something else to complain about, and uh, if you were exactly the way I think you should be, life would be greatly improved, and when you when you sort of articulate it, you give it you give it life you put it, you give uh, form to it, it becomes so clear that it's ridiculous it's, it can't be the whole story it's just a, and so you don't have to say to yourself, "Don't believe that, let go of it, it's a bad thought, but just by kind of lighting it up and say, okay, front center. Yeah. If I wasn't this way, if I was just somebody else, that would be great. If only I wasn't me, life would be greatly improved. And I used to I have that thought a lot. I used to think, if only I was just somebody else. Yeah if I if it wasn't me, that would be great. Anybody else that uh, so this is a, a really useful reflective practice to you have to be kind of quick on your feet to, to catch it, but uh, when your mind is making those kind of judgments, it, when it's to do with desire or greed, if only I could have all of the grapes, <laughs> I, I want to eat all of the uh, spring rolls. I'm not fascinated with spring rolls or grapes. I'm just thinking random pieces of food coming to mind. I want them all, and you say yes. And if you had them all, you would be happy, right? <laughs> Sometimes Ajahn Chah would would take it to a literal absurdity in his mind because he, he had to, quite a lot of food fixations. And so uh, when he was on the arms round in the mango season, he could see himself getting very excited about mangoes. Like, oh, is are really good this year? Oh, they're really in season. This is great. So, so to teach himself a lesson, he said, Mangoes, you want mangoes? Okay, let's have mangoes. So he. He filled his bowl. He had a very big arms bowl, so he, he filled his bowl with as many mangoes as as he received, and and his lid as well, and uh, and he made himself eat them all. Thirty-seven mangoes. So I'm not sure what state his guts were in it, yeah. <laughs> but he said, "Mango, you want to eat them all? Okay, off you go." So after about the fifteenth one, no, you wanted them all. It's going to make you happy. Go on, go on, go on, so that. Uh, It's a way of uh, teaching yourself what they call an object lesson. So that uh, that, uh, helps. That's not to be advised. (laughs) It can be quite physically dangerous, but Ajahn Chah was uh, an extremist. But uh, just using it as an internal reflective practice to catch those judgments of i got to have, I can't stand, uh, jealousy, fear, aversion, desire, whatever it might be, to catch it, to replay it uh, clearly and consciously, and then just watch it fall apart. And then after it's fallen apart, see how that affects your heart, see what the uh, what perspective that puts uh, the uh, the impulse into, you know, how that changes that. Okay, that's enough for today. Another hour has gone by. The mother of the father, the